You will turn to 1 John chapter 5. We will consider verses 1 through 5 today. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, you are light and love and life. We need life and light and love. You sent your Son in the fullness of time. He is the image of the invisible God. By him you have revealed to us among and among us light and love and life. You have established your witness in this world, empowering the apostles by your spirit to bear witness, to record your word of truth. You've accomplished all of this for us, that we might know and enjoy you through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We thank you. The abundance of mercy and provision you have shown us is higher than the highest mountains and deeper than the deepest trenches. Grant us ears to hear that we might be sanctified in life, light, and love. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from 1 John 5, 1-5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. Praise God. Be seated. I almost get the sense that the people John is writing to have written to him and asked him, uh, these teachers are telling us that this is the way to know God, so you tell us, how can we know God? It's almost as if John flips the question on them and says, here's a better question. How has God made himself known among you? That's the problem with humanity, isn't it? That we're keenly aware of the breach in fellowship between us and God, and we have a longing in our hearts to have fellowship with God, communion with Him, and we, we, we want to strive to know Him by our own initiation. And John is happy to kind of flip the whole thing upside down and say, we love because He first loved us. By this, He has shown His love among us. So through this book, we've seen these three markers of divine fellowship, relationship with God, love, faith, and obedience. And this passage combines all three into the tightest package in 1 John. They're all three here. Love, faith, and obedience. Now, if we try to follow John's logic uh, in a linear way, like an argument, uh, we will get frustrated. Believe me, <laughs> I, I know. Uh, because that's not how he's thinking here. 
And the reason is that these three markers are, um, as Stott put it, so woven together in a single coherent fabric that it is difficult to unpick and disentangle the threads. They're so interwoven together, it's hard to pick them out. If we follow John's thinking in these verses, uh, 1 through 5, we'll actually start and finish in the same place. We'll start and finish with faith. And if he was making a formal argument, we, we, we might even want to accuse him of circular reasoning. But it's actually better to think of faith, love, and obedience as individual points or circles. You see, I, I gave you an image this morning on your, your bulletin. Individual circles, and they're all connected to each other in a triangular pattern, and each of them is, is connected to the other. And at the center of the triangle is another point with, with connections to all of these three circles, and the central point, the central um, source for these is the new birth. So a few images come to mind. John's thought here is not a stream, rather it's like a musical trio, each instrument providing its own beauty, but united together into a single whole. Or it's like a three-legged stool, with each leg tied together and fastened to a single central point, and if any one point or bond fails, the whole stool falls over. So the beauty of his answer to the question, how can we know God, is that rather than giving us an exhausting, impossible, unknowable uh, quest of ever-increasing steepness and complexity to discover fellowship with God, he gives us instead a solid, unified, knowable, experiential, systematic, coherent package of evidence that God has already intervened in the lives of believers such that he has brought us into fellowship with himself. So I want to walk through these markers and their relationship uh, to each other in the new birth. So first we'll look at faith, love, and the new birth. Faith, love, and the new birth in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, he says. Just consider the pastoral force of this universal principle. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And the false teaching says something like, you have to strive progressively to be free of your fleshly husk, uh, that's holding you back from intimacy and knowledge with God. And John says, actually, if you believe in that, that the man Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the prophesied Messiah, Savior of the world, you already are a newborn child of God. Uh, by the way, this verse is, is an absolutely irrefutable proof text for the Reformed doctrine that Regeneration precedes faith. Everyone who believes, present tense, has been born, past tense or per perfect tense in the Greek, of God. Regeneration comes before faith. But the reason that we as Reformed people get excited about this is not to win arguments, I hope, but because it really matters. We are born again before we believe as a result of our new birth. 
And this is exciting because God has decided to bring us into his family. For nothing in ourselves. He did it. So not even our faith is a work by which we enter into communion with God. Faith is a fruit of the new life of God's children. In our own day, we're uh, confronted with ideas and suggestions that we can sort of fluctuate between belief and unbelief, falling in and out of favor with God. Or that we do not have what we desire because we do not have enough faith. Our faith may be very weak or it may be very strong at times, but the fact that we have faith at all in the Lord Jesus Christ is evidence that we are sons and daughters of God, born of God. We are members of his family. So don't, don't let that truth pass you by. Uh, amid all the voices, including perhaps the voice of self-righteousness in your own head, that religiosity will exhaust you with new and improved ways of getting to God. And John stands out as, as the voice of reason and, and rest. If you believe Jesus is the Christ, you are a spirit-born child of God. We've been brought into the household of faith. And naturally, then, we have an affection for the one who has brought us into his household. What young child doesn't love and cling to his parents as he comes home from the hospital? As people get older, sometimes they begin to hate their parents. Sometimes parents are terrible parents and earn the disdain of their children. Um, But even that disdain is a reflection of the reality that the mutual bond of love between parent and child is, is normative and that it's been broken. But God is a perfect Father. He's loved us perfectly. He's initiated perfect love in us and among us. And we love Him because He first loved us. And such love inevitably turns from the vertical plane to the horizontal. He says everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Um, Literally, this translates something like everyone who loves the begetter loves the begotten. In our own families, our affection may wax and wane between each other. But at the end of the day, our siblings are our siblings. Even if we haven't spoken to them in decades, even if we're at odds, no doubt there's at least a seed of love Remaining. We share a common DNA, a common ancestry. We share siblings in common, common places we grew up. So if that's true between our families and our families and our siblings, at least in principle, if not in every case, how much more in our eternal family does love turn from the horizontal or the vertical to the horizontal? There is an objectivity to this love. Whatever our feeling for one another at a given moment, and pardon the rough analogy, but we share a common spiritual DNA, a common father. 
Oh, Mike Horton had a, 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 has a nice line about this. He says, a church is not a group of friends you picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. So faith, love, and the new birth are all tied together here in verse 1. Faith and love not earning us fellowship with God, but he initiating fellowship with us by bringing our dead souls to new life. We believe and we love because God has begotten us. He has brought us home from the hospital to live with us in his home. So whatever claim of of enlightenment or experience of the divine promise, a presence or a promise of, of divine blessings through our own efforts that we may encounter these claims, they have nothing on what John is assuring us here. That we have fellowship with God because he chose to enter into fellowship with us. We may be able to break fellowship, but he will not. Next, secondly, here we'll look at love, obedience, and the new birth. Love, obedience, and the new birth. In verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So love for God and love for his children are inseparable. If we love God, we will love his children. We know that we love God by the fact that we love his children and vice versa. Then in verse 3, how, how do we know that we love God? For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. We know we love God through obedience. Matthew 12, Jesus says in 46-50, uh, Matthew tells us, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we could be in a room full of people with a bunch of children and I could kind of holler out, Cruise kids, time to head to the car. And if they're paying attention, they will come out from the group and, and follow me to the car. I don't even have to say to the kids, cruise kids, I can just say, kids, get to the car, and they'll recognize me as their father and follow me. And then we will ultimately follow he who is our father. Likewise, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So if you love God as your father, you will follow him. You will do what he says. You will listen to him. I don't think John is advocating uh, perfect obedience as the condition by which we demonstrate our love for God, but rather the simple fact that we follow God's directives rather than those of the world shows that we are his children. He says in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's that paternity question. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the question is really quite simple. Who, who do we obey? Who do we follow? And the answer to that question shows the reality of our spiritual paternity. And he continues the theme of obedience in verse 3, um, leading us to the, the final point, obedience, faith, and the new birth. So we're working our way around the triangle. Obedience, faith, and the new birth. He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Back up for context. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So love of God or love for God is seen in the fact that we keep his commandments, but I think it's also seen in how we experience his commandments. The critical reader, I think, will ask, in what sense is it true that his commandments aren't burdensome? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, he, he calls the law the ministry of death carved in stone. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it. And the psalmist says in Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell in your holy hill? Who, ha- who shall have fellowship with you? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. That sounds burdensome to me. So in what sense is it not burdensome? Well, the problem is not the law. The problem is us. Paul says in Romans seven twelve through 14, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and sold under sin. So the weight of the law is a crushing burden for those who will use it as a a ladder to get to God. It's an impossible burden. Initially in the garden, prior to sin, the commandments of God were were for flourishing, to promote life and ideal communion and fellowship with God and man. And that has not changed. Rather, the burdensomeness of the law is in the fact that we as sinners are guilty of it and unable to keep it by our own strength. You remember back from the context from last week's passage, um, John said in, in 4, 17 and 18, By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
I think there's a connection between this idea of fear and the burdensomeness of the law. If we're laboring to keep the law out of fear of what will happen to us on the day of judgment, that's an impossible burden to bear. But if we've been born again, made new creatures, been brought into God's family, then we have the irrevocable status of child of God because he placed his love on us. Then the commandments of God become a source of joy and richness to us. They serve to promote flourishing and fellowship with God and man. And so, yes, they are hard to keep as we still have to fight against indwelling sin in our hearts. But the law is no longer this, this impossible, unscalable mountain we have to climb to get to God because we're already with God. We're born again children of God. Instead, it's a joy and a boon to the suffering servant, uh, sinner. Rather than groaning under the burden of the law, we can join with David. And he says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. That, that's the essence of his commandments are not burdensome. So when the commandments of God are done in this light, from a position not of fear and burden, but as the child of God, following the loving guidance and wise rules of our Father, that we see God manifesting his active love in our lives. We still uh, see this a little bit more here as John goes on and he explains why the commandments are not burdensome. In verses 4 and 5, why are they not burdensome? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You think back to chapter 2, um, remember, John had, had told young men, probably uh, a spiritual delineation, uh, you, you have overcome the evil one. And only a few verses later, he begins to, to speak about the Antichrist, the prophesied end-time opponent of Christ and his people, who is coming and whose spirit is already active in the world. And John uses this word, uh, Nike, Nike, the goddess of war, is the, uh, so in the verbal form, Nikao, he uses this word overcome or victory um, four times in these two verses. He clearly understands and he wants to communicate that there is a battle behind the scenes going on for these people's souls. There's something to overcome, there's something to be won. Now, there's a reason that the church during this time is called the church militant. One day to be the church triumphant. Because we are engaged in a war. Numerous times in, in Revelation, Jesus says of the one, he speaks about the ones who will conquer. 
The same word, Nike. Revelation 3.5 is an example. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So it's going to be a fight. A fight to persevere to the end. A fight to stand firm against the attacks of the enemy. Our enemy is, is threefold, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And they're waging a, a war, a brutal war, a war of attrition to wear us down. And how will we win this war? How will we overcome? John suggests first that we will win uh, simply by being on the winning side. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Another, uh, we were talking about circle diagrams, is a circle, a Venn diagram with one circle. There's complete overlap. Those who have been born of God have victory. Second way we overcome is, he says, by faith. And this, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You get a sense of, of what John sees as the battleground in these verses. We remember this excursus about victory is John's reason why the commandments are not burdensome. We could kind of reverse it here and we could say, our faith is the victory that has overcome the world and everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Therefore, his commandments are not burdensome. Because we already have victory over the world. We already have victory over sin. The devil's uh, shtick from the beginning in the garden has been to convince us not to believe God. To corrupt our faith. Faith is believing God. God is the killjoy who does not want you to know good and evil like he does. His commandments are a burden to you. Be free of them. He's not out for your happiness. Look out for your own happiness. Do what's right in your own eyes. But John says to these people, you're not buying it. You have faith. In fact, verse 4, the verb is a past tense. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We believe God. Why? Because we have been born again. We, we have regenerative life in our souls, so we believe God. We believe His ultimate revelation, Jesus, is His Son incarnate for us. We affirm that God's law is good and righteous altogether and that we have broken that law in unrighteousness and that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension and his mediatorial intercession for us, that in him we have a righteousness that is not our own. So now we're free to obey the perfect law of God, not from fear, but from faith. This, John says, is the victory that has overcome the world. But the deal is sealed, the victory is won, and there is no going back. 
In uh, World War II, the Japanese were defeated and they had lost in the Pacific Theater. But as one person put it, uh, the Japanese are like everyone else, only more so. They're not a people that's going to give up. And so rather than surrender, they're preparing for invasion in Japan by arming citizens to, to fight to the last man. So even though for everyone born of God, believing the gospel, the war is won. The victory is won. The slog is far from over. We still have a battle to fight for the remainder of our lives. The battle to love, to believe, and to obey, it will not be an easy one. But we can fight by faith, knowing that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. So how can we know God? How can we have fellowship with him? John's answer is, how has God revealed himself in you? He has manifested himself among us. Faith, love, and obedience stand as markers of the new birth by which we have been brought into his family forever. So John says he's made a full circle from faith to love to obedience and back to faith again. And all of it flowing from the new birth. His aim here is not so much logically to argue his point, uh, but to put on display the beauty of the fellowship that we have with God and the assurance that we have in him. He's taken us on a, a tour of the pillars of the assurance of the Christian faith. And he has let us hear the harmony of the unified whole of individual instruments. He, he sat us down on this three-legged stool so that we may feel the firmness of God's faithfulness to us. Amen.